0: He made an appeal based on the fact that evidence of the discovery of of Keisha's body should have been suppressed because it was discovered during the course of a warrantless search. Keep in mind, in the United States of America, there's just a few ways the police get
1: in your house. Warning. The podcast you're about to listen to may contain graphic descriptions of violent assaults, murder, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast the fourth and final episode of the murder of Keisha Hughes. Welcome back to the Murder Police Podcast. I am Wendy.
0: And I'm David.
1: Well, David, on our last episode of the murder of Keisha Hughes, we left off discussing you interviewing Troy, right? Right. Okay, so I'm guessing at this point he has been arrested for her murder. Correct. So now he's in jail, Fayette County Detention Center, awaiting trial.
0: Exactly. And of course, on the last episode, we talked about all those unique things we found in the investigation after the arrest, which was kind of crazy, but that's the way it usually works sometimes.
1: So while he's awaiting trial, I guess at what what point are are they getting ready to to wrap this up and and try this case? Well, the way it works,
0: and we've heard the other detectives talk about it, and I'm sure it's this way across the world, is that when when we're waiting on the trial – the Commonwealth Attorney's Office is sending the investigators kind of like a honeydew list that changes quickly and often. As they go through the case, they find things that they want to reinforce or if they've got questions, and they'll send messages over or meet with you and ask you to go knock out extra interviews or to double check on pieces of evidence or maybe in some cases, ask for more things to be tested. And at the same time, They're receiving all of your documentation for their file, which is an important part of this whole thing. And sometimes people can see on some of these documentaries where there's problems with this. There's a motion for discovery that's made by the defendant's attorneys. When that motion is made, the prosecution with the assistance of, uh, for example, the police department, the medical examiner's office, the coroner, everybody that's involved, copies of everything we have in that file. Have to go to the defense attorney in that motion of discovery. It's really important to make sure no page gets left behind, if that makes any sense. It's also important that everything that you have in your file that's been documented goes. For example, you could never ethically and legally withhold something that would be exculpatory. And we've talked about exculpatory on the show before, where in the course of the investigation, if we dig up and find some information that could lean a person to believe the person might be innocent of the crime, you have to turn that over, too, and what the results of your investigation was. Withholding exculpatory evidence is why some cases are overturned. Some of them are sent back to retrial. It'll damage the reputation of anybody involved if they get involved with that. So you have to imagine how important it is to take that murder book. And actually make sure every page is copied and then every audio recording, every video recording is copied religiously and turned over for that. So that's going on. And again, the honeydew list, which is the thing about the honeydew list is for a lot of people, I think when they first see it, they think it's busy work. But it's the prosecution's office, the Commonwealth attorney. Specifically, we've had Ray Larson on the show before. It's everything they need to go to trial, because there's a big difference between having probable calls to make an arrest and get an indictment and then in having something that actually may be successful in trial that's thorough to bring facts to the jury. Now, in this case, all of that happened, but you asked about trial, and in Troy's case, he actually ended up pleading guilty in the case and never went to trial.
1: So why would he have not gone to trial? Because he pleaded guilty.
0: That's a decision that's pretty interesting. Uh, You know, you see a lot of people in the public, they'll kind of get impatient. Uh, For example, one of the things that's ridiculous, I think, is when a news says that a uh, person charged with murder was arraigned on Friday at 9 a.m. and entered a not guilty plea. And people are like, Well, they should have pled guilty. Where in an arraignment, you're going to plead not guilty. And if you try to plead guilty, usually the judge will enter in a not guilty plea for you because it's too early in the game to do that. Now. The thing about a guilty plea is, is that that's based on a lot of discussion between the defendant and the representation in court in the form of a defense attorney. And I've never obviously been in on those conversations. We've been on the periphery of those before, because a lot of times the attorneys uh, will have a good relationship with the police department. And there's a lot of discussion that happens before you can get in the courtroom on this case. I would have to believe that just guessing that it could have been one or maybe a combination of things. One may be that it's possible that Troy actually personally took complete accountability for the murder of Keisha and really meant that. We've heard before in the other episodes about how he regarded her and women in general. And in his mind, he may have rationalized this death as being a fact of life for him and a necessity. I think the other thing, too, we can look at, too, is that we did have a a confession that withstood suppression hearings as far as it was allowed in the court. So you had the the direct admission of him, and then you had all that circumstantial evidence. When the defense attorneys and the defendants are discussing this, I think sometimes they look at it as to what are the odds of actually coming up with something different than a guilty, and then maybe they do the math, that if they take a plea – And they say, for example, in this case 40 years, maybe to them it wasn't worth the risk of getting life or life without or life after 25, whatever that might have been, a longer sentence. I think we talked before that the death penalty was not on the table with this case because it didn't have the aggravators that Kentucky required. So he enters a guilty plea. And but that is the basis of a lot of conversation between a defendant and the defense team.
1: He then enters his guilty plea and I guess he is off to prison, right?
0: He is. Yeah, he he's off to prison. He starts doing his time, as they say, starting on that 40 years.
1: Where is he housed? Do you know this?
0: Well, right. currently, the last I saw and looking up online, he's at the Eastern Kentucky Correctional Complex here in Kentucky, a state prison. Now, while in custody, though, he ends up actually through his attorneys filing an appeal on his guilty plea.
1: Wait, why would he appeal a guilty plea that he pled guilty to?
0: That That's a common question because, it, you know, you look at it that he's taking accountability and he's admitting to at least enough of the crime to do the time, as they'd say. But And some people, again, in the community may think that, well, you shouldn't be allowed to appeal if you plead guilty. Well, that's not the way our justice system works. One of the things that makes it the best one in the world is is that You still can appeal those things and bring those arguments in front of appellate courts. And some of the reasons are is that what if your defense wasn't as strong as it could have been? What if there was information that changed or was discovered after your guilty plea? What if there were other considerations that never made it into court either because the court missed them or the defense attorney missed them? In those bad cases where I talked about exculpatory evidence, you know, those are things too is that, wow, you know, we find out six pages that a file weren't delivered and in those files was an interview that, that the information should have been entertained in court and examined by the defense attorneys. Any of those things can happen. But the big thing is in this country, you have that ultimate right to appeal and question things. in In this case, he actually appealed based on three things that are pretty interesting and we'll kind of go through those one at a time to talk about what they were and what the Supreme Court of Kentucky decided. Uh, The first one is, is that he made an appeal based on the fact that evidence of the discovery of of Keisha's body should have been suppressed because it was discovered during the course of a warrantless search. That's pretty strong stuff. And in a lot of cases, that could be. We'll, We'll talk in a minute why it didn't work here. But keep in mind, in the United States of America, there's just a few ways the police get in your house. Either. It's either through a warrant or you consent to be in them or what we call an exigent circumstance or an emergency, and the preferred method is always through a warrant, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The second thing is he said that the confession should have been suppressed because the person who advised him of his Miranda rights, in this case that was Officer Ricky Glenn, when they took him into custody in the parking lot after that chase, was not the same person that conducted the interrogation. That's kind of interesting, and we touched on that a little bit, but go deeper on that. And the third one was kind of a technical foul strike that they were looking at with something to do with the violent offender statute in Kentucky. They were questioning the constitutionality of that law, period, because it provided for an earlier minimum parole eligibility date for a life sentence uh, than for a term of 40 years. So there was, they were questioning the, the whole concept of what that law was and mathematically what it means. Now, on the warrantless search claim, what's interesting about that is they gave a lot of details about how the first responding officers arrived and and knocked at the door. We talked about that, but they went into a lot of detail about uh, the second officer that came later in the day, Darnell Diles, when he went to the apartment and did the knocks on the door, he noticed a foul odor coming from the apartment. And originally, I think he actually indicated in his paperwork, he thought it might have been, might have been baby diapers. You know, it, it's it's hard to distinguish probably with the breeze standing out there. But that what they questioned was the idea that eventually, as we talked about before, is Darnell was allowed in by the apartment manager. And when they opened that door, Darnell Dowles had said that he encountered a, just a rush of extremely hot air. With the same foul odor he had, had uh, smelled before, but by the time that he smelled it when the door was open, he started to really kind of recognize that as decomposing human remains. And we've said before that that smell is very, very pungent, and once you smell that, it, there's not a lot of smells that are like that at all. So his arg- argument was is that he went in the apartment based on that, thinking that somebody, in her, particularly Keisha, could need help. That was the first thing the court looked at, and they ruled in favor of our work and ruled that there was no need for a search warrant based on what we call exigency, which means that if we the police can go in if there's a, a genuine emergency there, and especially when we think somebody might need to have aid rendered to them. Now, the court agreed with that. On, on a second thing, though, is that they also uh, talked about something that came into the, uh, testimony where One of her brothers had indicated that if the police had not gone into the apartment, he would have gone into the apartment, which, of course, he's a civilian. He doesn't have to have a warrant. And this is a neat thing, too, that comes up in these, is the court demonstrated through research and case law that on that part of it alone, they would have allowed it because of a thing called inevitable discovery. And what that is, is that If there's a a good argument on totality of circumstances and facts that, for example, Keisha's body was going to be found, then that enters into the idea that the warrantless search was also not an issue for the police because it was just going to come up. You'll find inevitable discovery really in a lot of cases with with deaths because of, like we talked about, decomposition and odor is that that's just not going to sit unattended for any amount of time in most cases. So the court supported us on that one. And there was they denied any kind of appeal based on that. The second one was the confession. And you remember, I think we talked specifically about the idea that when I went into that room with him, I did not read him as Miranda writes again. Ricky Lynn had done that out on the road when he captured him and had given me the time and where he where he was when he said that. So, with a even though we'd had a suppression hearing, they argued that because of the, the, uh, the fact that that wasn't the same person that read the rights, and then they argued that there was a time delay between the Miranda and between me actually sitting down to interview him, that they thought that that supp- that confession should be suppressed, and that would be a strong hit in this case. Fortunately for us, the court yielded and not yielded. The court decided in our favor again that the confession was admissible. Because, again, based on case law throughout the years is that it was pretty clear that it didn't have to be the same person that reads the rights. I think I said in a previous episode that primarily you get read your rights one time and that there wasn't a significant enough delay to arguing kind of bright line rule with Miranda. So that statement got allowed in, which was a big deal. We, if we'd lost that, we'd been trying this again, and I don't know how successful we'd be. And then finally, on that third one, kind of a smaller issue, is the violent offender statute, and that was uh, overruled as well. They didn't act on that. Again, sometimes the defense attorneys uh, that do a good job will challenge as many parts of the record as they can, which is why your documentation has to be good, and protect the record. That's, That's a vigorous defense, and that's another part of our system that we have is that you're represented by people who can vigorously defend you. So you don't look at an appeals issue and say, well, that's just garbage. They shouldn't be doing that. That's actually the sign of a really good attorney that takes these things and appeals them. In this case, fortunately for the Supreme Court of Kentucky, we were upheld on all three and his conviction based on his guilty plea of 40 years stood.
1: So he's still serving his time right now.
0: Yeah. Like I said, uh, last time I checked, he was at the Eastern Kentucky Correctional Complex. They have some information available online, and I think I'll put this on the website. If not, I'll try to remember to on the show notes. But his expected time to serve is January 24th of 2034. The uh, minimum expiration of a sentence date based on what they call a good time release date, provided that he doesn't go into a facility and and infract and cause problems there. It's called good time. That date is actually uh, still listed as January 24th of 2034. Now, he is eligible for parole, and that's actually coming up pretty quick. His first parole eligibility date will be December 25th of 2023, so that's just a couple years out. One year. Exactly, exactly. So that's on the way, and, and we've talked about pro hearings before, I think in Michael Turpin's case, some in Trent DeGiro's case, and that'll be up to the family. To anybody left in the family that has an interest in that is that they may want to go testify at that pro hearing, but that's usually based on how they feel about the situation and sometimes, unfortunately, if anybody's still around. But he she does still have family in Louisville, one understand.
1: Well, basically what we have here is another horrible domestic violence case that ended in someone being murdered.
0: Yes, and we've talked about those before and we've covered those. It's sad enough to think that how many murder cases in any community are based on domestic violence. It's just such a a, a curse and a problem. And the one thing I want to talk about, and we've said this before, is that we're talking here again about a domestic violence situation where at one point there was a protective order and a domestic violence order in place. Those were all in there. And in the end, Keisha died. And I want to bring this up because just because we're talking about these exceptional cases where there's a tragic result, they are still exceptional and they're still outliers because it's important to remember that the Domestic violence system, the support network, the court system, the, the processes in place usually work. In almost most of all cases, they work. They do provide protection for people. They do provide people to leave environments where they're not healthy or they're not safe. And I just want the listeners to remember that just because you listen to a true crime show or see a documentary does not represent all of the domestic violence cases that go on is that they are the outliers. So we, so we still have to have a lot of faith in the system. We have to have faith in the people that report it. We have to have faith in the people that address these, the victim advocates, the social workers, the people that can get involved, and the judges that take care of these, because in most cases they work. And I just want to make that clear. Now, what we do want to do is make sure people understand there's resources for people. You can start locally whether you are in the United States or not, I'm sure in other foreign countries where we're being listened to and we are global as far as our audience is, is that there's local resources for sure that you can reach out to. To kind of cover the basis for everybody, though, is there is the, in the United States, there is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. And this whole system is set up to give the caller some protections and some anonymity while they kind of get a game plan in action. But I really want to encourage people to do this: that if you believe that you are in a situation that is not only unhealthy, but you are at risk or are currently being abused, is to reach out for help as fast as possible, to get in touch with someone, to get in touch with professionals that can help you answer questions and maybe give you strategies and plans that seem kind of impossible right now because of where you're at. Now, the domestic violence hotline, the national one, is available at one eight hundred seven nine nine seven two three three. 799 7233 One more time, that's one eight hundred seven 799 Don't give up hope. There's an entire safety net out there with professionals, like I said, that can help you even when you're in a place when you don't think help is available or will work.
1: Most certainly, reach out to that 1-800 number if you are a victim. If you're a friend or a family member of a person that you suspect are being victimized, be a listening ear for that person. Try to reach out and get them help. They may be in a situation that they know is not great, but they don't know how to get out of it. And unfortunately, in this incident with Keisha, this was not her first time being victimized. We know of this due to the autopsy that was done. And there's likely countless times he put his hands on her that wasn't even visible in that autopsy. So we want to, if her family is listening, we want her family to know our prayers go out to them. You know, this has been some years, but still they lost their loved one in a very horrific manner. She has children out there, you know, that had to grow up without a mother. So our hearts do go out to her. And please, if you know someone who is a victim or if you yourself are, please don't stay in that situation. We don't want anyone else to have to pay this ultimate sacrifice like Keisha did.
0: I agree. And, you know, our town lost a a beautiful young woman that had a complete future in front of her. So, like you said, many prayers to the family and we can all keep Keisha in our thoughts moving forward. The Murder Police Podcast is hosted by Wendy and David Lyons and was created to honor the lives of crime victims so their names are never forgotten. It is produced, recorded, and edited by David Lyons. The Murder Police Podcast can be found on your favorite Apple or Android podcast platform as well as at MurderPolicePodcast.com which is our website and has show notes for imagery and audio and video files related to the cases you're going to hear. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest LinkedIn and YouTube which has closed caption available for those that are hearing impaired if you've enjoyed this podcast please subscribe for more and give us a five-star review on Apple podcast or wherever you download your podcast from subscribe to the Murder place podcast and set your plate or automatically download new episodes so you get the new ones as soon as they drop and please
1: tell your friends lock it down Judy